Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their efforts to advance patient-centered, customer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Folks, before we get on to the interview today, uh, I feel it's really important to set this topic up right and provide a, a backdrop to what we're going to be talking today. At a high level, we're going to be discussing community health and the social determinants of health. And rather than in the interview focusing on the problems, we're going to actually be talking almost exclusively about the solutions. But before we do that, I really thought it was important to, again, provide a little bit of background to this topic. It's been said, picking up on years of research in this area, that our zip codes determine our health even more than our genetic codes. That is that the socioeconomic status that you're born into and live in in this country has a more profound impact on your health than just about any other factor. It uh, greatly influences how much health care you utilize and how you utilize it, whether it's preventive or proactive care or whether it's reactive or tertiary catastrophic care like emergency rooms and hospital rooms and operating suites. Uh, another thing to note is uh, the difference in life expectancy in our country between counties and between zip codes can vary up to 20 years. That's 20 years difference in life expectancy depending on what county or zip code that you're born into and live in. Another example of disparity in care in our country is the statistic that black infants are at least twice as likely to die in childbirth as white infants. Black women are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. This is today in the United States of America. This phenomena is not explained by the obvious factors you might think of, such as genetics or uh, prenatal behaviors or, or even socioeconomic status. The research is pretty darn clear about that. What we do know is it does have everything to do with social factors that impact this. Continuing along the same lines, we, we have in this country the highest infant maternal mortality rate amongst other developed nations in the world. And while the other nations are seeing a decrease, we're actually in this country witnessing an increase in maternal and fetal mortality. In fact, we are one of only 13 countries in the entire world in which maternal mortality is worse now than it was 25 years ago. There are nearly 900 maternal deaths a year in this country, and there are approximately 50,000 preventable near deaths per year in this country, maternal near deaths. Significant disparities in, exist in other areas of clinical medical care, such as antibiotic prescription giving. In fact, there was an article published just last month demonstrating this. There's a great disparity in preventive screenings, such as in colonoscopies and mammographies. Colonoscopies in particular, we see a, a very, very low right rate amongst Latino women and particularly Latino men. So the point here is that uh, these socioeconomic and these societal and social factors play really the single largest role in determining how healthy an individual is, as well as uh, healthcare utilization and healthcare costs. And it's important to note that more healthcare does not necessarily translate into better healthcare or better health outcomes. Let, let me wrap up this section here and this part of the intro by reading uh, to you the conclusion from a study that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association just this past year, July 2017, regarding the disparities in life uh, expectancies. And here's what the researchers conclude. Geographic disparities in life expectancy among U.S. counties are large and increasing. Much of the variation in life expectancy among counties can be explained by a combination of socioeconomic and race-slash-ethnicity factors, behavioral and metabolic risk factors, and healthcare factors. Policy action targeting socioeconomic factors and behavioral and metabolic risk factors may help reverse the trend of increasing disparities in life expectancy in the United States. And in fact, our interview today is going to speak directly to what the researchers here point out. So, again, our focus is going to be on community health and on the so-called social or societal determinants of health. 
And, and quite honestly, I, I think this is so important because I'm not sure in the discussions I've had with physicians and physician leaders across the country uh, and other healthcare leaders that we really understand this topic and the enormity of this topic. Uh, I'm not sure that we really understand this phenomena. And what I mean by that is not just the problem. I'm actually more interested in the potential for the set of solutions, which to my mind may be the most potent set of solutions we have to really create a new healthcare and a much better healthcare delivery system and obtain much better health outcomes than we do today. And that's why I'm, I'm spending so much time in this introduction. I feel so incredibly fortunate to have a guest on our show uh, today, a remarkable individual, Micheline Davis, whose passion, whose professional expertise and her efforts are focused on improving the health of communities and on leveraging the assets of the healthcare system she works in to positively impact the societal, social, and political factors that really determine our clinical and, and quite honestly, our economic health again. And this is, this is really, to my mind, a one of the most profound reframings of healthcare delivery uh, to recognize and realize the connection between the two, between economic health and clinical health. Micheline Davis is the executive vice president and the chief corporate affairs officer for Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health. In this role, Ms. Davis leads the social impact and community investment across Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Healthcare System. She oversees policy development, government and external affairs, healthy living, community and employee wellness, engagement, and global health. She joined Barnabas Health in 2009 and soon after that was named Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs. She is, in fact, the first woman and the first person of color to serve as an executive vice president in the Barnabas Health System's history. The social impact and community investment practice that she leads leverages the system's assets with a programmatic emphasis on ensuring health equity and spearheads innovative social impact and external affairs initiatives that, again, address the social, economic, and environmental conditions that have a significant, if not the most significant, impact on health outcomes. The policy arm she leads focuses on creating a more equitable future for all citizens of New Jersey. Micheline Davis has received uh, numerous state and national recognition for her work. She's been ranked by New Jersey Biz as New Jersey's top lobbyist in the healthcare industry and by Politicker New Jersey as one of the most politically powerful people in the state of New Jersey. Most recently, in fact, just last month, she received the 2018 Modern Healthcare Top 25 Most Influential Minorities in Healthcare Award. Before joining Barnabas Health, Ms. Davis served as the Chief Policy Counsel to former New Jersey Governor John Corzine. She was, again, in fact, the first African-American to serve in that role. She was also the acting New Jersey State Treasurer. Prior to the Treasury, Ms. Davis served as a Senior Policy Advisor in the New Jersey Department of Health and Senior Services. She is very active in her civic community and serves on numerous boards within the state of New Jersey. She began her legal career as a trial litigator. She's an honors graduate of Seton Hall University, and she holds a Juris Doctorate from the Seton Hall School of Law. Just on a, on a more personal note, I had the really incredible opportunity to, to speak with Micheline a few weeks ago. It was a late Friday afternoon. I was uh, driving home from uh, after a long week of work, and we had a chance to talk and to prepare for this interview. Uh, I remember uh, speaking to her for a good half an hour as I was driving home, and I pulled into the driveway at home, and I stayed on the phone with her for at least another 30 to 45 minutes. I did not did not want to get off the phone or get out of the car. I was just so inspired by her commitment, her conviction, her dedication, her passion, her intelligence, uh, her accomplishments. It, it, it was just uh, really an amazing experience to be able to speak to her. And she is, I will tell you, she's a powerhouse. And I think you're going to experience that in this interview in a moment. Now, before we jump in, and we will jump right into the interview in a second, I just want to, as you're listening to this interview, I think it's so, so important uh, to to really pick up on what she is doing and she and her organization and her community are doing because it is really different. It's novel. I think there are three things to note. First of all, she and her colleagues are going right to some of the core social determinants of health. They're going right to the issue of employment and autonomy. 
Secondly, they're doing this in, in a remarkably collaborative and inclusive way with multiple diverse stakeholders in the community, such as other healthcare organizations, local universities, the local government, local as well as international businesses, and in fact, they're including their own vendors. And finally, what I think is really, really exciting and, uh, and, and very novel is their approach is not just helping people, which is what we've done in the past for many decades. It's really an enabling and an empowering and a self-generating approach. In fact, it, it reminds me of that parable, and I'm going to really quote this roughly, but you know, it's that idea that if you give a person a fish, they can eat for today. But if you teach them how to fish, they can feed themselves and their families for the rest of their lives and for generations to come. And so uh, I'm a big disciple of this uh, particular approach to healthcare and health. And uh, again, I'm hoping as you listen, listen to the pearls and the wisdom and what uh, Micheline and her colleagues are doing. And my true hope for this interview is that you'll get catalyzed and, uh, and motivated by this. And if you're not already working on this, you'll speak to your local healthcare institutions and your local government and begin to do what uh, Ms. Davis and her colleagues are doing in New Jersey. So why don't we jump into the interview? Micheline, without further ado, how are you today? Thank you, Zeev. I'm, I'm well, thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Um, and again, I, I just want to say just congratulations. I, I, I read about you in the, in the Modern Healthcare, just the winning that, that uh, Top 25 Most Influential Minorities Award. So congratulations on that. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for the um, incredibly outrageously um, kind uh, uh, introduction. I appreciate it. Well, I, I think you deserve it. Um, so, Micheline, before we jump in, uh, could you give us a little bit of background about uh, the uh, the RWJ Barnabas Health System that you work in? Oh, um, certainly. So um, RWJ Barnabas Health is the state's of New Jersey's largest integrated healthcare system. Um, we span um, from our suburban to urban areas. Uh, New Jersey does not have a, a, a federal designation um, that qualifies for rural. Um, so so we, we don't tend to say that. But what I will tell you is that uh, we span from the, the tip of, of our state, uh, the northernmost part, Bayonne, all the way down uh, along um, our shoreline. We have them 13 um, acute care facilities, um, the state's largest integrated behavioral health network, um, uh, a, a large uh, pediatric rehabilitation um, facility, which is actually from whence I am calling you right now, um, as well as uh, a variety of other offerings, um, some joint ventures with uh, hospice and palliative care, um, uh, our Quest Labs and others, um, and so we, we are uh, at this point an affiliated 44,000 employees strong, which makes us the state's second largest private employer. Wow. And, and about how many uh, physicians or providers do you have in the Barnabas system? Um, so we have about 9,000 uh, physicians, um, uh, 1,000 residents or, or interns, um, and we are, it seems, rapidly growing um, by the day. That's uh, so a large system. So... Micheline, the, the, before we get into, and I have so many questions um, uh, about the programs you run, and, and, and we're going to dive into that in a moment, but just stepping back for a second, what's the, what's the why? What's the, the kind of, if you could sum up the problem you are addressing uh, that you're trying to solve for in the state of New Jersey and the communities that your health system serves, what are the, the big challenges that, the, that you're really trying to, uh, to, to deal with? Um, so what I will tell you is that we are, are really um, uh, pretty much aimed at trying to make certain that we are making so much more than just what nonprofit health uh, care systems and hospital systems tend to look at around the area of, of community benefit. Um, we're trying to actually impact long-term uh, sustainable change in the communities that we serve. What we can tell is the fact that, uh, quite frankly, you know, simply having um, these large hospitals in a variety of vulnerable populations in communities um, has not necessarily been, been, you know, benefiting the communities as much as we'd like um, to believe, right? What we um, can tell is that if we continue to do uh, all of the good work that is done when we are delivering high quality clinical care inside our walls, um, quite frankly, that's just not going to be enough. 
right? And so mm-hmm. um, we can, you know, observe the studies and we can we can say that we know it or we can actually do something in order to evidence the fact that we've got to shift and change this. You said something actually in your introduction, which for me really is the why, right? Um, you know, it's always interesting whenever I am in an environment with um, other healthcare executives and folks always talk about, you know, wanting to reduce healthcare disparities. And I kind of chuckle to myself because I'm just like, so let me get this straight. We're going to start out already accepting the fact that all we want to do is reduce them. We don't want to eliminate them. Wow. That's great. Right. I mean, I, I can't, yes. you know, I, I, I you're, you're dead on about the, the infant mortality um, issues and then the black infant mortality, maternal mortality as well. But I will tell you this, my friends, one of the things that I want to make certain about hmm. is that as we have those discussions, which are so keenly important, and I'm so delighted that you utilize your platform in order to talk about, um, you know, topics of this level of severity in real time, I want to make certain that folks don't do what they have historically done. And that is, you know, they mention um, race as an indicator. But um, what I realize is that we've only had half of a conversation. Um, it's dawned on me and having a variety of discussions with folks that people think that, you know, um, black infant mortality happens to be that way because, Um, there's something wrong with the black Mm -hmm. infants and or Mm -hmm. right black maternal mortality um, winds up being um, such a significant rate as if there's something wrong with the black woman I want to ensure that I'm not ever walking into a space that permits us to blame that victim and that when we say that race is an indicator the keen importance about that is really in order to point to the systems and structures Right. The policies and practices that we have um, proliferated within the scope of clinical care, which actually are indicative of the structural racism that has treated mm-hmm. these individuals differently um, so that we are right much more cognizant about what is it that we need to do in order to change those systems and structures. Mm-hmm. So that those outcomes right, are different. We need to be taking a look at um, those studies and these ratings as really um, key indicators of how we need to reposition our thinking um, and what it is that we need to do so that, um, quite frankly, we are actually delivering that high quality clinical care in a culturally competent manner for everybody across the board. Yeah, no, I so appreciate you you pointing out and, and you know, in the years that I've been doing this, uh, you're right. It's the word is reduce uh, or improve uh, or something along those lines. But um you know, I think you're you're kind of hitting it straight on, which is, well, why don't we just eliminate it? I mean, isn't that what we should be doing? And so I, I really thank you for, for pointing that out, that no one's ever said that to me, and I've never heard that said. So so I appreciate that. There's, you know, Michelin, I think it's important for all of us to recognize, and I know you do this, and so it's, it's just, you know, obvious to you, but there's two parts to it, it seems to me. There's the clinical part, which, as you were just pointing out, there there's clearly a disparity in in the in clinical uh, medical care, and um, and you know we could spend you know a, a lot of time talking about that. I, I we you know I'm addressing that in, in the work I do. I, I know you are, and your system is as well. Um, you know, an example of that is the difference in in preventive screenings, uh, uh, the difference of the disparity in, for instance, antibiotic giving, which is just an article. That uh, came out in the last month or so, and we could go on and on. The difference in the care of patients with heart failure or, or post MI—that all—and I think that's imp- incredibly, critically important, and, and, and we have to work on that in the systems. But we know from the literature that 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 still the clinical care still only makes up about twenty or thirty percent uh, of the impact on health outcomes, and that what most people aren't aware of, and I think it's really important. So much of the work that you're doing, you know, is in 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 the larger domain, in the seventy to eighty percent domain, which is you know these social determinants of health. Um, you know, issues such as economic instability, education, food insecurity, housing, uh, you know, safe neighborhoods, all those things. I, I think most people don't understand that, that most of our health and our health utilization, our health outcomes are determined by the so-called social our societal determinants of health. And, and so much of your work is focused on that impact. And again, others have, have noted that we spent so much money and effort and time on the mm-hmm. clinical part but so little on, on working in that social part. And so it seems to me that y- y- you're trying to address that by, in fact, working on the social, the political, uh, the community part of that. Can you say something more about that? 
Yes. Um, I mean, actually, you really just uh, laid it out quite nicely. What I will tell you is that, um, you know, overall uh, health and well-being um, around health outcomes and risks are, are greatly affected by uh, the social determinants of, of health, right? So what we know is where a person lives and uh, the food that they have to eat and whether or not they have right easy access to nutritious um, uh, varieties of, of food, you know, really have a great deal to do with, with how it is that they will be able to um, essentially navigate the waters of life, right? What we know is that, you know, folks say oftentimes, well, poverty is the greatest uh, social determinant of health. Agreed. So why is it that we actually attempt to um, treat the person as they present on the clinical table without literally taking a look at, so what is their, their socioeconomic environment? Um, uh, do we ever have clinicians who are also asking folks, so, you know, how, how are you feeling about this particular ailment? Uh, how badly does it, does it um, harm you? How long have you been suffering from this? And then quite frankly, um, you know, do you in fact have enough food to eat for, right, this year, the, the, this month, this week, today? Do you in fact know uh, where your family will sleep if in fact you miss one paycheck? Are you housing secure? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I mean, what I will tell you is that, that the evidence is sound, right? We see this upwards of 60 to 80% that this is really, right? You you uh, spoke earlier about the, the zip code versus genetic code um, uh, statement made previously. I mean, it, it is a, exactly what we know. Nearly 50 studies show that social factors, including relationships within families, among community members, education, racial segregation, and poverty account for over a third of the total deaths of the United States within a year, right? So we, we, we have, have sort of come to this, this place in this stage, um, you know, as an industry, this is now something that folks say, okay, you know, we, we now will acknowledge the fact that these have greater um, impact and effect on uh, individuals um, than just that 20 minute uh, doctor's appointment. So what do we do around that? How do we shift um, our operational existence in order to ensure that we are leveraging our resources yes. um, to enhance these quality of life issues? Right. And how do we make certain that they, that we are um, helping mm-hmm. to create um, a more equitable society where we, because we know that it's going to have a significant influence on, on population health outcomes. So, so how do we begin to, to do that in a real way? I, I think that so many of your listeners, um, are probably well aware of that. Um, I think that there are some interesting examples of, um, how health systems are trying to now, um, invest in safe and affordable housing like we are, um, or access to education or public safety or, uh, you know, availability of healthy foods, um, in very similar fashions in order to ensure that we are really trying to address, um, what, what are the real life threatening toxins that individuals are, are trying to, to, um, exist within. So what are, what are some examples? And I, I, I my understanding is of your work, there's, two parts to it. There's the um, social impact and and then there's this community investment part. And I'm, I'm fascinated. I actually, having done some of the pre-reading to, to prep for this interview and looked at some articles, um, you know, I'm, I'm particularly interested in, it, well, all of it, but um, I, I don't know that I've ever heard of your, what you call your anchor strategy, mm-hmm. this idea of, um, of uh, you know, hiring people uh, well, let me, let me let me let you explain the the anchor strategy, the higher higher invest. I, I'm telling you, it, when I read it, I had to read it over and over again because I just thought how how insightful and how brilliant is this? And again, making the connection between investing in uh, your community uh, in terms of hiring practices and purchasing from local vendors in the community, investing in local vendors. You know, some you know at at at, at first blush, you're like, what does that have to do with healthcare? And yet. <laughs> You know, I, I'm 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 counting on you to number one, you know, make the connection, but two, you know, explain it and give some examples of it. I just think it's absolutely brilliant work. Oh, thank you. You're kind. Um, so, so what I will tell you is, yes, we in fact, um, you know, I think I like to, to say that it is the embracing of our anchor mission, which in, which equips us to to literally lean further into this space in order to do social impact and community investment work. So our anchor strategy is threefold. Um, one, it is um, really around 
um, how do we effectuate a change in our local economy of the communities in which each one of our facilities is situated, right? So where we have a hospital, right? So hospitals have a long uh, history of always telling the fact that, well, we're large economic engines. But quite frankly, you know, I'm not certain that they've um, been been as um, uh, direct about ensuring that and intentional about ensuring that that large economic engine is helping to make that local community better, right? Um, we see large-scale academic medical centers in the hearts of lots of urban environments. Um, most of the folks who tend to work, right, and or teach their drive-in from, from uh, suburban uh, communities outside of that periphery and drive out um, as well, right? What we're trying to do is to make certain that we are literally trying to impact uh, that local community in a very real and dynamic way. So we've done that through the adoption of a three-prong anchor strategy. One is to hire locally, which you've mentioned briefly. The second one is to buy locally, which I'll talk about in a moment um, and may very well be my favorite. And the third is to invest locally. Um, in order to, to hire locally, it means that we need to, to um, you know, work d- dynamically with our human resource um, uh, officers in order to ensure that everything from recruitment um, to retention, matriculation and promotion are really kind of on the table, right? It, it's really important that we are trying to hire from outside in. But I will tell you this. That does not in and of itself end transgenerational poverty. So you also need to ensure, ensure that you are creating internal pipelines so that you are providing opportunities to folks so that they literally have the opportunity to, to also go inside up, right? Um, I, I think what's really interesting about that, and I've got some, some, uh, a story or two to, to, to share with you if you've got the time. Um, you know, I was working with a community partner because all of this work happened through collective impact and collaboration. I think long gone are the days when any one hospital thinks that they can, you know, mm-hmm. try to do any of this work on their own, you know, and that is actually sort of the, just what the industry norm was, right? We we want to do everything to get our name out there. You know, I, I completely understand the competition. I do, I do. Please don't, don't think that, that, that I'm naive about that, but I will tell you this, that true community corporate partners, um, well, they wind up having third-party validators, not because they hired someone, right? It's not a billboard. It is because of the fact that you have literally taken the time to develop the trust within the community, right? So there's a really big business case to all of this. People sometimes hear about this work and think um, that it is wholly altruistic. Um, That is just not the case, right? And so we can talk about the Edelman Trust Barometer and the 2016 report, which I relied upon uh, a great deal in launching this work uh, in a moment. But what I will tell you is that it has really doing this work has, has equipped us to do two things. One, our uh, CEO stood with the uh, mayor of our largest city in the state of New Jersey um, and declared that we were, as a system, going to be hiring um, 350 residents of this large city. But it is because of the fact that this large city has had uh, an um, employment gap. Right. So the effort is called Newark 2020, and it is literally an effort of closing the, the employment gap between the state of New Jersey and the city of Newark, its, its largest city, by 2020. Now, what we found out is the fact that it, that only requires 2020 individuals uh, to be hired. At the point of this launch, which was July of 2017, that gap was, um, I believe, 11.9 percent. Right. Um, so again, right, the, the, so the rest of the, 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 the state and the rest of the country seem to be going in one direction. So why is it that we would have the, this large city, right, with a majority minority population that is being left behind? Mm-hmm. And why is it that we would not come together as a corporate community, right, in order to convene thought leaders around, okay, so we need to do this differently? What is unique? about that particular initiative, my friend, is the fact that we have some non-traditional quote-unquote anchors, right? So traditionally, the anchor title, which means, right, an entity that utilizes its place-based presence um, in order to effectuate, right, change in its environment, um, which is also 
very analogous to what the, 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 the terminology around social impact is, right? Um, right. So, so it's, it's an institutions, right? The manner in which or the way in which the effect of an institution, um, uh, having an impact on society. So, so what is interesting about our work around the New York 2020 initiative is that, yes, we had the traditional eds and med play, med players. So, um, Chancellor Nancy Cantor at Rutgers Newark is actually um, uh, really a, a, a well-written in this space. She's actually um, uh, internationally renowned for her work in, in doing anchor work, which is, again, traditional for higher education, not so much for hospitals. And then even still, we wound up going to our other members of our corporate community and inviting them to the table to serve as anchors around that local hiring effort. What is unique about that is that it involves some small companies that you and your listeners may have never heard of these tiny names like Panasonic and audible.com and Prudential uh, sports teams like the New Jersey Devils airlines like uh, United. Um, so we came together and said, listen, we, we believe that we can be this change that they've been waiting for. Right. We believe that we can do this. Um, and so as a result of that, I think uh, um, uh, Audible may have may have announced 125 hires. I believe Rutgers Newark announced uh, 225, and you know RWG Barnabas announced 350. So we indicated that we were going to work with a very um, uh, intentional laser focus around you know where from where we would recruit and uh, ensuring that we are um, really working very diligently with other partners in the greater Newark community in order to ensure that we are providing these opportunities for hire. And then once they're hired, right, internal promotional Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, opportunities to the residents of Newark, especially those, my friend, who have been unemployed and or underemployed, right? So what does that look like? And I say that because of two things. One, I realized that there was an implicit bias when we first began talking about this and people thought, thought well, you know, we need a highly skilled and technical workforce. I, I want to tell you, um, a member of my team uh, is a Newark resident who I hired as a result of this initiative. Um, she has an undergraduate degree from Drew University, a master's from the London School of Economics, and has a background in global economic and global social impact work. I, I don't, I could not have, quite frankly, um, made her up if in fact I had dreamed her um, because she's absolutely incredible. By the way, she speaks three languages. Um, so so, so I, I, I utilize that because I need to push back against, you know, some of what we inherently hear from folks. Um, I literally had one asset leader within my institution say, so do I need to change, you know, the standard that I'm looking for for a candidate? Um yeah, right. And so we're just like, no, you just need to work on your implicit bias. The other side to it, however, is that when we talk about the long-term unemployed and or underemployed, um, you know, it required us to invest in the development of uh, a training mechanism, right? So we created and launched um, a program that we call the Higher Newark Bootcamp, right, which works with individuals who have been unemployed for some time in order to help to kind of refresh for them, um, the, the skills and abilities that, um, you know, we would, would need and, and, uh, uh, and they would need in order to be a marketable candidate. Um, now that isn't everybody, right? Within that city, most definitely not, but, but it definitely is, a, um, a, a certain segment. And so I say that because I think it's important that as institutions come to better understand and do this work, that you can't simply say, well, you know, we need the, the following skills and it simply isn't there. It requires you to go further into this space and to perhaps partner. So of course, we've also partnered with, um, Rutgers University. Uh, that that is located in that city, the New Jersey Institute for Technology, Essex County College, around, right? So talk to us, provide to us, right, the litany, the list of um, who your Newark residents are, who are also institu- uh, members of your institution. And then it also gave us a great chance mm-hmm. to take a second look at some of our own job descriptions in order to figure out, right. does this role really require what right. we're asking? Or is it just, right, what we've done as a, as a culture over time, right? So for a, a, a records keeper, do you really need to have a master's degree? I don't know about that, right? It's a storage facility, right? Right? Um, uh, we, 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 
we really need to make certain that we're looking about that in a very different way. And so um, that is, has been one of, to me, one of the most delightful opportunities here that it's caused us to have to look at. So what practices have we and policies have we just kind of adopted over time that quite frankly help to create, you know, um, an internal structure of uh, exclusivity? And how can we work to be more inclusive? Um, I think that the higher buy um, uh, initiative is is really unique. There's a concentric circle between um, locally hiring and locally purchasing. I love um, the the um, local uh, procurement arm of this because I've just had such a great opportunity to work with our internal asset leader, a uh, man by the name of Bill Cuthill, who who manages our construction and our facilities management who, you know, got this work pretty much right away and said, listen, we're about to do a $90 million construction effort on the hospital that happens to be located in Newark. It would be fantastic if we worked with, right, local um, uh, general contractors and or others in order to make certain that the folks who work on this site, right, are from this community. Um, so we're in the middle of, of that adoption um, right now. We've already had we've had a recent bidders conference where we let the developers know, hey, if you want to do business with us, then this is this is the way in which we do it. Um, because you give folks a choice, right? You you don't have to do this work, right? You, you don't have to to, to wind up um, uh, bidding on this deal, but we want you to know that in order for you to be successful, then you too must understand that this is what our mission is, and this is what we're we're looking for by way of adoption. The the piece that I just mentioned about the concentric circle between hire locally and buy locally is something I'm really excited about because, you know, as we begin to vend more with local, um, uh, and for me the sweet spot is uh, local disadvantaged businesses and or local minority women, veteran, right, owned businesses within this community. You know, at a large healthcare system of our size, of our scale and our scope, we get the fact that there's been a national trend to go towards the, you know, group purchasing organizations. I, I understand that we have one too, but I'm even speaking at their conference this year in order to say to them, hi guys, if you enjoy the right after you've been with us, then you need to understand that this is what we're looking for. Um, you know, getting, uh, um, and, and economies of scale are really important, but being able to vend with an entity that might be out in Michigan or Illinois, um, you know, doesn't do anything for our local community. So we're looking for them to find that way for us to do this. And one of the ways that our uh, supply chain uh, uh, senior vice president was able to accomplish this working with our CFO was literally around the uh, a, a, a record storage entity that had not had business with us previously. You know, we've recently gone through the largest merger in healthcare history in the state of New Jersey. Um, so we popped up on a few radar, right? <laughs> there are a few folks who wanted to take a look at an opportunity to do business with us. And as we were going through uh, and consolidating so that we would standardize what our our record storage documentation process was we found that there was a really unique opportunity to um, incentivize um, a potential business to come and locate in this city, right? So what I will tell you is, you know, there are vulnerable populations in every community. In every community, there are vulnerable populations. But this work really runs to the area where those vulnerable populations are in greatest concentration, and so as a result of that, we now have this business, which is now, right, it has found a business to, or a building to, to outfit in uh, the city of Newark. It is literally working to um, really align uh, uh, its uh, business with uh, being able to hire individuals locally. Um, we will be their primary vendor, but as a result of what I've mentioned earlier, those other names that I mentioned, you know, we're also hoping um, to formulate, you know, introductions so that they potentially have the ability to grow their business since they are clearly evidencing that they are the type of business that is like-minded and gets the fact that a healthy and well community is one that um, literally pushes back against uh, transgenerational poverty, right? So, because we know what our health outcomes are. Listen, I could rattle off stats. I'm a policy geek, right? Or I could tell you about an incident when I I, le I was leaving one of our hospitals and I saw a man um, leaning against the door and and I saw mm -hmm. that he had a, a little blue piece of paper in his hand and he belt he he just kind of balled it up and threw it on the ground. Um, I walked over to him and picked it up and said, "Sir, 
you know, did you drop this? Because I, I had a feeling without seeing it up close that I knew what it was. And sure enough, as we both opened it up, it was uh, a prescription from a, right? So it's a piece of paper from a prescription pad. And uh, he said, no, nah, that isn't mine. And I said, come on, sweetheart. I just saw you throw it on the ground. Um, and he said, yeah, mm-hmm. but that's not for me because they gave me that prescription and I just spent my last money on the two buses and the cab to get here. I'm about to walk home now and I'll probably get there tomorrow. Right. So we think that we are delivering health care. Right. We, we say that that's what we are are in the business of. And yet there was no there was no element of that patient visit, which literally um, led to the fact that this is an individual who is not economically stable and needed to be in a different situation in order to literally attach to that, which we believed was the care that we were giving them, right? We were saying, here, take this medication, you know, you'll, you'll be much better. That wasn't even an option for him. Right. Right. He was, I mean, this, this, this gentleman was having problems getting home. Right. Uh, and, and like you said, he's not going to take the meds because he can't afford them. Right. You, you know, uh, Micheline, the, the, I mean, this is fantastic. I mean, so here you are, this uh, healthcare system uh, in the state of New Jersey who, and, and uh, is working with, uh, you're focused on, on this New Work 2020 initiative. You're working with other large corporations uh, in the city and collectively uh, working to, uh, hire local and, uh, you know, and to invigorate, uh, your, your economy in, 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 in the largest city, uh, in New Jersey. And, uh, also now, uh, you know, really influencing your vendors to do the same. And it, it just seems like a virtuous cycle that you, you know, when you're changing your hiring approaches and so just tremendous work going on in, in the hiring and also in the purchasing of, uh, and, and there was one story actually along these lines, I, I, I'd love for you to share, um, uh, and, uh, this is a story I read. It was in the wall street journal. Uh, I think it was just in March of this year, a story about, uh, an employee, uh, actually within your system. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name is Khalif Thomas and he has a company that makes socks. It's called Rakia socks. Uh, and, um, it, just an absolutely, uh, uh, just a, it's, it's almost kind of a made for, for, you know, a movie kind of story. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I, I can't wait to see how it unfolds more, but, um, here's a guy, um, who, uh, was, was uh, working as a HVAC mechanic in your hospital, had a small side business, right? Uh, making sports socks. And as part of your initiative, um, uh, your hospital system hired him. Uh, again, the small company, but it was local in Newark, hired him to make socks for the hospital. For the hospital. And so he, he went from, I, I don't know how many socks he was making before, but he's now making 80,000 socks uh, for the hospital. <laughs> and uh, he's now had to, it, what it sounds like is that he's, he's doing a good job of it because now four other hospitals in your system are now employing his company to make socks for them. So he's grown from one employee to three employees. And now it sounds like he's going to hire another dozen employees to keep up with the growing business, all because of the initiative you just described. So this is, this is like a dream, right? I mean, this is an incredible story. Here's a guy. And by the way, as it turns out, as the Wall Street Journal indicated, this guy was born in Newark, New Jersey. Um, Right. And, and so, and in fact, in fact, he was born in the hospital he's now selling to. Um, So here, here is a homegrown entrepreneur uh, as business has taken off. He's hiring other local uh, people as well to work in his factory. Um, and, and so, again, just another, you know, an amazing story of what, what, you're, what you're doing. Now, what I, and, and, and what I understand is you're also investing in these companies, local companies. So, so my question is, you know, and some people might be wondering, so this, I mean, this is virtuous work. There's no question right. about it um, to rejuvenate the, the economics of the community. How does this work that you're doing, this part of the work, uh, how does this relate to health? Because, and, and I would love to actually hear more about some other work you're doing. So, for instance, if you, you know, we could talk about work that has to do with food, right? And so that connection to health is a little bit more direct if, if you're helping like with food pharmacies or something like that. But, but this idea of actually rejuvenating the economic health of the community, how's, how does that in turn lead to better health for the community? 
Yeah. So, so uh, I, I want to say two things here. One, um, you know, I mentioned earlier about the collaborative, um, uh, nature of the work. I just want to make certain that we, um, also, uh, talk about, um, uh, for just a moment that Khalif is magical, but I will tell you that he is not unusual. And that actually, so not only did we hire him, we literally partnered him with Rutgers School of Business so that they work on his business plan. Um, we work with the city in order to get him up out of the basement and actually um, into a warehouse located in um, the city of Newark so that um, the, the rest of the warehouse, which is owned by Unionware, they make hats. He's there making socks. Um, and so, so, you know, we work together in order to, to sort of right size, um, this, this individual and to put him in that place. And I think that that's a really important, uh, piece to this. We even helped to, to identify and locate equipment for him. Um, so we know that health is a product of the interplay of factors in five domains, right? That shape how health develops across the life course. The National Academy of Medicine said that, right? The biological predispositions, social circumstances, physical environments, behavior patterns. And then, of course, there's also access to needed critical care. Um, I think that um, that the challenges to an expansive vision to do this work, right, are, are really pretty clear. Um, New Jersey, for example, ranks 11th in the nation in terms of its um, state population. Um, it's ninth in the overall health ranking of the state. But a closer look at the data on the behaviors, community environment, clinical care, and policies really that contribute to overall health outcomes reveals um, that it often falls uh, in the middle of state rankings and pursuant to certain critical health indicators. So what are these, my friends? So, um, you know, according to the United Health Foundation's uh, America's Health Rankings Report, um, I think New Jersey has, so 26% of our um, population of adults are obese. Um, you know, there's been a 90% increase in drug deaths. I think that everyone has seen, that, you know, pretty much that, that such an increase across the board, uh, especially due to opioid use. Um, but the state also experienced a 17% decrease in public health funding. Uh, it's a very high, it has a state with a, a very high rate of children living in poverty at nearly 17%. Um, and, uh, nevertheless, it, it ranks 37th in the nation with regard to per capita public health funding. So why am I telling you all of this? So what I'm telling you is that we know that, um, this, uh, rate of obesity that, that study after study has, um, produced the fact that clearly food insecurity, food deserts, that they have a great deal to do, um, you know, dare I say food swamps, which is the new terminology that's u- being utilized in this space, um, that they have a great deal to do, right, when you do not have access to um, healthy and nutritious and, and easily accessible food, right, so to reasonably priced um, food um, that we wind up seeing this in uh, our health outcomes as a result of obesity, hypertension. Um, uh, we, we see such a high incidence of, mm-hmm. of, of stroke. We see um, high blood pressure. So, like, I, I don't think that that's new necessarily, right? You tell me, my friend, if you feel like, you know, I need to go into that even, you know, all the more. Um, but I think that it, it's something that, that so many right. of us in the healthcare industry really have begun to really understand and see that these things are, are pretty, um, uh, pretty well correlated. Right. Um, uh, and then like our healthcare quality Institute, our state healthcare quality Institute, um, published a report. I want to say it's about a year and a half ago now that literally provided a statement that the dollars that we spend today on prevention, nutrition, early childhood development, and safe and trauma-free neighborhoods, um, that really the improvements in the overall health of the state population is, is really contingent on, right, what are we doing in these other areas, right? So um, it has a great deal to do. Listen, the New York Times and actually NBC News recently did a piece on um, weathering. Um, they were talking in particular about black women and it really deals with um the issue of you know being primary caretaker and um based on uh the pay uh, equity gap the fact that right at least in our our state um white women make 82 cents for every one dollar of a white man but but um black women um uh for them that that number is only 54 cents and for latina it's only 40 46 cents so you know uh, you know how does all of this correlate well you know while our industry may look at this in a siloed manner you know for the human being living this existence right it it is really the confluence of all of these things and so we 
cannot ex- we cannot sit here and say that we acknowledge and understand that they have an impact. And then when we get to the individual, right, not anticipate that impact to show up in their health. Right. So we see high rate of hypertension. We see high blood pressure. We see the obesity that we're talking about. You know, we see all of these things because there are a number of factors which have created um, really and contributed to the proliferation of them in the, the individuals who live in these environments. Yeah, no, that's, that's a thank you. That's a that's a great, great answer. It really paints a, a picture of, of how this is all connected and and we, we, we can't separate them out. Um what, what is, in, in the work that you're doing, what are you most excited about now? What, what do you feel whole, you know, we feel really, really good about in terms of making a difference? And again, the stories you've shared and the work you, you know, we've covered so far is, uh, is fantastic. I'm just kind of, what, what, you know, what, what really sort of makes you feel that we're going to make a difference? You're going to make a difference. Hmm. I don't know if it's because of the fact that, um, you know, I was a, a old fan of uh, the work of Michael Porter and Mark Kramer around, right, the link uh, between competitive advantage and corporate social responsibility and shared value, right, the fact that successful corporations need a healthy society. I think that um, I think that what excites me most is the fact that, you know, these entities, including healthcare systems, are really beginning to take a look at the fact that education, healthcare, equal opportunity, that they are essential to a productive workforce, right? And that, um, um, that, you know, it's interesting. I think for some reason, for a long time, we were waiting for the change to come from somewhere else. Um, but the fact that we're getting in the driver's seat and realizing that timeout, I can be actually the driver of this change. You cannot be the breadth and depth of a system, the size of um, RWJ Barnabas Health, and then be in a state like mm-hmm. New Jersey, right? Um, and, and span it in this way, and then decide not to do this. You know, I mentioned hire and buy, I didn't mention invest. And I think that invest is something that really excites me. Um, you know, we're investing in community based organizations. And so we've just uh, entered a partnership with the national nonprofit LISC, um, uh, which so many individuals are, are, are familiar with, I'm sure. Um, but we're, we're investing in um, really conducting of a feasibility study at this point around. So how do we shore up? Um, the, the city of Newark is actually broken down into wards. Um, so how do we shore up the south ward of Newark, which is not the downtown area mm-hmm. that has the performing arts center and that has, you know, the Prudential building and that has, you know, really the opportunity to leverage um, around all of the great uh, and new um, uh, development that has happened there, but rather how do we pull that momentum for development out into the corridors of the city where the people live, not where the corporations live, right? Um, so now we're taking a look at, so how do we bring about um, a retail corridor and what do we need to do differently in order to literally effectuate change in reference to the housing structure? Um, you know, some folks uh, um, may have a, an incentive to live locally. We don't have that because of the fact that we don't have the, the product, the housing product to incentivize our employees to live there. So what have we created it? Right. So that as we are hiring them and then providing them with promotional opportunities, they do not then leave the city and, f- and flee to the suburbs, but rather that we keep them in the city. And quite frankly, they contribute to um, really just just the, the, the higher tide that raises all the, the ships so that we have diversity of socioeconomic background within within this, mm-hmm. this same city that we're we're hoping to change. Now, that excites me because you talked earlier about black infant mortality and in the city of Newark, and I believe I shared this with you, you know, we've got three hospitals. We've had more over time, but we have historically had and continue to have black infant mortality that is worse than three third world countries. What are we doing? New Jersey is, is what, the 14th wealthiest state in the country? Right. Why is this okay? So I'm at least delighted about the fact that there's real opportunity to have honest discussion in real time about the fact that we can change this. So the reason why I love the title, Social Determinants of Health, and I say this so often, I'm certain I mentioned it to you before, my friend, is because so long as we include that terminology, my friend, then we literally can say, since they have been socially constructed, they can be socially deconstructed. What do we need to shift about the way in which we have historically done business in order to ensure that there really is an equal opportunity and a more equitable future that's possible. Yeah. Because we have contributed to the realization of what, what is out there today. 
So what do we need to do differently to change that system and structure to create a better tomorrow, right? Folks do not have to live sick. They don't have to just go, they don't have to accept the fact that because my zip code is 20 miles to the left, right? right, That my lifespan will end 20 years earlier than up the street. That doesn't have to be, and we have the power to change it, and that excites me. You know, I, I, well, it, it, it excites me hearing you talk about it. And again, what I really, really love and respect about what you're saying and what you are doing and the commitment your organization has made is, like you said, we've, we've known the science uh, of disparities and, and we know that lack of education and economic disadvantage and, you know, food scarcity uh, and, and um, uh, you know, housing and neighborhoods has an impact on health. Uh, yet, I think that um, you know, it's easy to wait for someone to fix it or to say, this is outside of my domain. And what's really profound here, there's so many things that are profound, but one is that the healthcare system is seeing itself as, uh, as a mover, you know, as a catalyst of this sort of change, as opposed to pointing a finger and saying, well, this is someone else's problem. We just do clinical, technical, medical care. You're saying, no, we're, we're gonna, this is health and this is healthcare and we're going to we're going to get involved number one number two it's it's as you pointed out before again just fantastic uh, uh, approach is to say we're not going to do this alone you know uh, we're not in it for the glory we're in it to get results to improve our, our communities to improve health to improve life and um, and so that means that we're going to have to work with other systems we're going to have to work with other corporations and collaborate and you know again uh, you know, just fantastic. And then, and then this, this whole, you know, point you're making about being very, very intentional about that means we're going to have to hire people and, and make ourselves accountable, pick a goal, reach it. We're going to have to start to buy locally, um, which means we're going to have to, you know, change how we've done things. We might've gone and bought things, you know, from distant vendors, but we're going to really focus here and we're going to invest in our, in our community as well. And so you've taken this from a problem to a very, very well thought out, solution that you're executing on. And so I, I just have to, I'm, I'm, I'm standing up in my office here and just applauding you because it is the connection. Again, you know, uh, folks are doing work across the country, which I really admire too, uh, that is more, is closer to healthcare. You know, these food pharmacies, I was just talking to uh, uh, Executive Vice President Geisinger, just amazing work with food pharmacies. And I know you're, you guys are involved in that too. Uh, this this is moving, in, and, and uh, you know, even the, the conversation with Geisinger was really fantastic because they're really turning the whole concept of a hospital inside out, and not seeing the hospital as a as a building or a system, but really seeing the hospital as, as seeing the community as the hospital. And and I think you're doing the same thing by really uh, addressing uh, things that you know might have been you know considered out of your domain and I, how, how do the people around you i mean do people get this concept do people understand what you're doing uh is it is it a hard uh i mean i'm just i'm just enthralled with it i just think it's brilliant i, I i'm i'm repeating it because i'm hoping as people hear <laughs> this that it'll catalyze uh others and and into doing this i mean and you do have you have um you mentioned something or i read something that you have a healthcare healthcare anchor network so you, are you working with others around the country to, it, it, mm-hmm. yeah? Absolutely. Thank you so much for asking about that. Um, absolutely. We are um, actually, um, so three healthcare systems came together, um, uh, Kaiser Permanente, uh, ProMedica, and RWJ Barnabas, um, and uh, work with the Democracy Collaborative in order to literally um, um, launch a national health anchor network in order to serve as almost a, a practice cohort, right? A, a learning um, environment where we can literally learn best practices one from another. So you talk about Geisinger, but we have Gunderson, we have um, Rush, um, uh, you know, so that we can better understand. So how are you advancing this work in your region, right? What does it look like? What were the difficulties, right? So how did you get more folks on, on board internally? Because I got to tell you, we could talk all day about how difficult that has been. Um, but also, you know, and, and how did um, you help to build trust um, with folks externally so that they would partner with you, so that they would understand that you were approaching, you know, this um, with fresh eyes and with the ability to learn from them? 
we're really great about sitting high and, and looking low and just kind of, you know, telling folks, well, we know what you need. And, and that's not what this work is, right? Um, it requires an institution to be an active listener. So the Health Anchor Network, we have some 40 somehow uh, hospitals and healthcare systems across the country now. Um, and actually, we, we will be in uh, San Francisco next week. Or we have another convening wow. where literally we come together in order to do exactly that, to learn best. So how do we literally unbundle some of our contracts in order to, to procure locally? What, what are you doing differently about promotional opportunities and locally hiring, right? What about that training mechanism? How did you get that off the ground? What grants were available in order to, to help to, to you to do this work around investment? You know, Gunderson almost functions as a CDFI, as a financial institution. They provide um, some direct loans and, and do a variety of other things. You know, we have a granting system. Um, you know, our last um, convening, we brought together the treasurers um, of uh, these large-scale healthcare systems to best understand and, and better um, right investigate. So how do we really utilize even our investment portfolio to effectuate the change that we're hoping to see in these communities? What can we do differently? How can we do this well? Um, so, you know, I, I, I am really proud of the work that uh, we've been doing. Listen, I'll tell you this, though. We also work to hold ourselves accountable. And so there are working groups that, um, you know, folks jump on the call and we report out because we realize that transparency is really important. So you can't talk about the work and not do it. Um, uh, but it's really great to be able to do that in a safe space collaborative where, you know, you can say, team, I'm having re- a real amount of difficulty, i.e. either getting my, my chief financial officer to understand why we need to do this and or, um, you know, um, we, we, we work with a local vendor that, you know, it's, it's, we're hitting some bumps in the road. What can we do? You know, we had to realize that we cannot pay a local um, a small vendor the way we do everybody else, right? So we had to devise a different revenue cycle for them so that they are, they receive their payments um, within 30 days, whereas everybody else does it within 60 days, right? So it's sharing learnings mm-hmm. like that so that more hospitals in more cities and more communities and more states across the country really begin to do this work mm-hmm. and, and that they do it well. Yeah, you know, just amazing. I mean, I, you know, again, what I really uh, admire and respect is, you know, you getting together in this network and getting down to brass tacks. You know, what does it actually take to hire? You know, what are the policies that have to be pulled back and and reprogrammed? It's, it's uh, boy, such a uh, radical reframe of health care. Um, so let me ask you. I just, I know, I know you've got to go to your your next appointment. Let me, if you, let me ask you a, a question. Um, clearly you're passionate about this, you're expert in this, you're accomplishing uh, wonderful things, you and your colleagues and your organization. Why are you, Micheline Davis, doing this? What about your background, your upbringing, your personal influences? What, why are you doing this? What, what, what drives you to do this? Um, I have said to my CEO that I realized that he kind of, um, you know, pulled me into my purpose. Um, I will tell you that um, in the midst of really studying this work and, um, you know, I went off to HBS in order to really study social innovation and really how to do this work in the right way and the best practice and the industry standard um, around social impact and social innovation work. But what I realized was that everything that I really needed to know, I knew all the while and it comes from my background. I'm the daughter of, um, you know, a bishop and a social worker. Um, uh, it was spoon fed to me that we are here in order to make this world a better place for your brother and sister. And sometimes they don't look like you or come from where you come from. But this is undoubtedly in, um, uh, what our purpose is to be. Um, I will also tell you that I am from, um, because I wear this as a badge of honor, I am from um, uh, a city that the country um, uh, at one point, um, it was touted as the most dangerous city in the country, uh, of Camden, New Jersey. But I have to tell you this, I grew up there and had a wonderful childhood with, you know, two, two working parents and went to private school. So I'm not certain where everybody was talking about, but what I will say to you, um, is the fact that it, it has been such a helpful background for me. It's been such, um, uh, um, a wonderful, um, learning environment for me because really it just evidenced that every item of struggle or difficulty that I encountered, I've only encountered it because I know it so well. I know it intimately enough that when I walk into these communities, I'm able to speak to them with a level of mm. 
integrity and authenticity because I've been hungry too. I, I, I'd love to ask you what, um, what call to action you, you could you, uh, could you offer to the listeners? Is there some, some final comment or something that people can do to, you know, to begin to do some of this work on their own or in organizations? Yeah. So I really think that, um, you know, it, it took a great deal of, um, let me back up for a moment. I once asked my CEO, you know, why in the world did he pick me? I, I, I you know, I, I had a really tough, our finance team has still has difficulty in, in figuring out exactly, you know, why it is that we're doing this. Um, but I will tell you, you know, I remember I said to my CEO, gee, you know what, what, you know, what, why just like me to do this? And he looked at me and kind of left because I had been talking to him about it for five years. And, um, he was like, because I needed someone who was almost possessed about it. Um, so, uh, you know, I will say that, you know, undoubtedly you've got to do, you know, all of our social impact work has been really conditioned, um, and based on, you know, our community health needs assessments and, you know, CDC data and World Health Organization data, you know, you need all of the evidence, but then you also need a particular level of passion in order to begin doing this work. But I think that the key component of this is that you need individuals who are willing to begin, right? Don't wait until it is perfect. This work must be done by a design methodology, which means that you do not plan, 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 launch. You plan, you launch, you review, you tweak, right? You relaunch, you continue going. Um, so I say all the time, it's not for everybody. It's for those of us who are willing to be unicorns or mermaids, um, who are literally not afraid to be the one in the room who sees things differently than everybody else, right? It does not mean that you are wrong. It means that they need to catch up. So you need to be somewhat gracious because at some point, trust me, you know, they turn around and they're like, oh my gosh, I get it now. Um, uh, but I will tell you that, that you really need someone who is bold and courageous and willing to lead the organization in doing it because it is a different way of operating. And as a result of that, it is something of a culture shift. And so you need to make certain that you have someone who builds by consensus, who is willing to, you know, sort of steer the organization in that direction, um, but who is also um, uh, fit for the fight and willing to be tenacious about getting it done. Um, so I think that, listen, every organization can do this, you know, healthcare systems. Um, but I will tell you, you know, almost any other entity too. So I invite all the more into this field. Um, I can tell you our communities are in need of it and they deserve it. And it's about time that we finally um, decided to deliver the real care that's honestly going to make them truly healthy. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh for that comment. Um, again, inspiring. How can, um, how can people who are interested find out more about this work? Uh, should, is there, I know we, you talked about the healthcare anchor network. Are there other places? Yes. So I would actually love for folks to go to the healthcare anchor network. I think that there are um, really a, a number of resources that they will easily make available to you. Um, we believe in playbooks and we believe in toolkits. So we want to give the information out. Um, I really, really um, uh, want folks to, to visit there. There are other national policy partners we have in the space that we do not feel like we compete with. The Root Cause Coalition um, is is another, um, and we're partners of both uh, Health Anchor Network and Root Cause Coalition. Um, I think they do absolutely phenomenal work. They, they really address the issue of food insecurity. Um, uh, and the Health Anchor Network, to me, is really that entity that you want to go to in order to literally um, develop. So there's a readiness checklist. Um, what do we need to do in order to be best poised, in order to literally begin taking the active steps to, to um, uh, begin to do the work? Uh, they give you a lot of, of assistance in doing that. So I, I really want to encourage them to go there. Great. Thank you for that. Micheline, I have uh, I have so many more questions for you, but I know you've, you've, you're being pulled uh, to your next assignment here. No, I'm so sorry. I know you are. I um, so uh, let me um, let me first of all just thank you so much for taking the time because uh, I, I know how incredibly busy and pulled you are, and um, and just thank you for the work you do, um, and thank you for being part of creating new healthcare and bringing us just uh, really fresh perspectives and, and bold solutions uh, 
to really improve uh, the health of our of our uh, communities. Um, and I also want to just thank the listeners again, as I always do, for those of you who are doing the hard work uh, each and every day of taking care of patients uh, or supporting those who are taking care of patients. And uh, also for those of you who are helping to build our communities. Um, and um, I hope you've been inspired as, as much as I have from this, uh, this uh, dialogue with Micheline Davis, the Executive Vice President and Chief Chief Corporate Affairs Officer at the Robert Wood Johnson Barnabas Health System. So until next time, be well.